But I'm really excited, uh, really excited to be with you this morning, walking through this, uh, this gospel account from Mark. We're going to be in chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. I don't know if the custom here is to stand while we read scripture. You don't have to. Yep. Perfect. Nope. You're fine. Just stay seated. Let's keep it comfy. And let's read, uh, let's read this passage together before uh, we get started. Here we go. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am, am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they, brought, and they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for a moment before we begin. Father, I pray that you might rekindle our belief now that God the Holy Spirit inspired this very text some 2,000 years ago through the pen of Mark. And I pray that we would recognize this morning by your grace that you would give us eyes to see it and hearts to receive the fact that this word is inspired truth. Though narrative, though it's, it's a story, it is littered with goodness and grace for us to feast upon. And so I pray that we would recognize it as food for our souls, that you would humble us and give us the attention span long enough to dive into this, just long enough, God, that you might speak to us by the power of your most Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can even congregate. We thank you that we can even draw into this word because of the word made flesh, God the Son, who took our place on a sinner's cross as a substitute for our sin and transgression. He died on the cross that we deserved, 
He was buried in a tomb that had our names on it, and he raised to life. But when he came out of the grave, he left our sin and our inability to comprehend the goodness of your glory. He left it in the tomb. And so now, Lord Jesus, by the regenerating power of God the Holy Spirit, we've been given eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe this very word to be true, to be truth and life. And so remind us of that now, we humbly ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let me just kind of, uh, it'll be less setting the scene for you because you guys were here last week and more just reminding me, okay, this is where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. Let me just set the scene here briefly before we dive in uh, to, to this exact passage. So Jesus and his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, have just come down from the top of the mountain. And on this mountain, if you recall from last week's passage, these three disciples have witnessed a truly wonderful and a truly terrifying event, the, the transfiguration of Christ. Now, I know that that's a fancy and, and rarely used word, so basically what it means is that these disciples, Peter, James, and John, with Jesus, were given a temporary glimpse, a, a quick preview into the heavenly realm. They, they got to see Jesus not as he looks on earth, but as he looks in heaven, they got to see Jesus in his glorified state. And they, this is cool because they also got to see Moses and they also got to see Elijah, two dudes who've been dead for, for centuries, right? And on this, there's, there's a ton of significance to Moses and Elijah being present with Christ on this mountain. See, Moses, if you remember, he represents the law of the old covenant that God had between himself and his people. And Elijah represents the prophets of that old covenant. But the fact that they were with Christ during his transfiguration in last week's passage, this is super key. And what Mark, the, the one who's kind of assembling this story, he's writing all this down for us, the reader, to read. What he's trying to convey to us is this. Jesus the Christ... Jesus, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and he has now come to ratify a new covenant between God and God's people, and it will be through Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection, his substitutionary, sacrificial, atoning death, burial, and resurrection. Now, but kind of before this scene on the mount, on the mountain, uh, Jesus has been trying to tell his disciples that this is, this is kind of going on. Like, I've, I've come, to, come to live a perfect life. I've come to die. I'm going to raise to life. And they aren't listening. I mean, they're not getting it, but they're also, they're just, they're not listening. And so before Jesus, Peter, James, and John, before they leave the top of the mountain, the voice of the Father God from heaven booms down into their ears and he tells Peter, James, and John, the, the leaders of the disciples, he tells them, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And so here we are now in today's passage, verses 14 through 29. Jesus and the three have just returned from the top of the mountain and this scene that we behold in front of us right now is littered with symbolism. 
And so we're only going to tap into a little bit of that symbolism. But, but here, here, just kind of bear with me for one second. In Exodus 32, Moses came down from a mountain, Mount Sinai, after witnessing the glory of God and after being given the Ten Commandments. For those of us who know Bible and flannel graph Sunday school stuff, do we remember this, right? Okay. So what Moses came down to find when he left Sinai and he came down was the people of God, the Israelites, they had given themselves over to faithlessness by abandoning their dependence on God, and they had turned to worshiping an idol. It was, it was a golden calf. And this all happened while Moses was away on top of Mount Sinai. Interestingly, in today's passage, Jesus has just come down from the top of a mountain after witnessing the glory of God, God the Father, and what does he find? The people of God, the Israelites, specifically his disciples, giving themselves over to faithlessness, hear me out, by abandoning their dependence on him. And as a result, they're getting whooped by this unclean spirit, which is a fancy Bible term for demon. They're getting bested by this demon. Remember, we just read it. And so in verse 14, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they come off the mountain, they they relocate the other nine disciples who are surrounded by a huge crowd and they're arguing with a group of scribes and the scribes are teachers of the law and they're arguing over something. In verse 15, the crowd spots Jesus and they run to him with great excitement, probably because they, they want to see if he can help this situation. And in verse 16, Jesus asks the crowd, um, what, what's going on? What are you arguing about? Well, in verse 17, a man from the crowd, right, speaks up and he says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams, he grinds his teeth, he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. Now, it's, it's right here, right at this moment in the story where we begin to get this notion that the nine disciples who have remained behind while Jesus, Peter, James, and John were on the mountain, that these nine have sort of drifted into a faithlessness, a lack of belief, a lack of dependence on God, just like the Israelites did while Moses was on Mount Sinai. Now, notice how it was the boy's father in verses 17 and 18 who addresses Jesus, right? He answers Jesus' question. Jesus is like, you know, what's going on here? It's the boy's father who speaks up. But in verse 19, when Jesus goes to respond, it says, and he, Jesus, answered them. Jesus doesn't directly respond to the boy's father. He actually responds by addressing his disciples, the nine men whom he had kind of left in charge, whom have been living and walking in close proximity with Jesus. And what, what does Jesus say in verse 19? How does he respond to the report that his disciples have been unable to cast out the boy's demon? He says to them, O oh, 
faithless generation. Which is really to say, oh, the unbelief. So, so, so the, the Greek of faith and the Greek word for belief, we have pistis and pistuo, and they are almost interchangeable in this interaction. It's, you could just say, oh, the unbelief, he's saying. How many times have we gone over this, disciples? And then he says, bring, bring the boy to me. Okay, now later on, after the demon has been cast out of the boy, Jesus and the disciples somehow seemingly transition inside of a house, right, in verse 28. So they're inside a house, and in the privacy of this house, the disciples, who I'm, I'm sure were quite humiliated, they asked Jesus, why? Why weren't we able to cast out the demon ourselves? After all, you guys have been traveling through Mark. You remember in Mark chapter 6, they were not only given authority by Jesus himself to cast out demons, but Mark 6 reports that they actually did cast out many demons. They, they've, they've done this before, so we can imagine why these guys were uh, like a little puzzled. What, you know, they're taken aback at the day's situation. Jesus, what? Why weren't we, weren't we able to do this? Well, after they're asking Jesus why, in verse 28, verse 29, Jesus gives them their answer. And it's right here. We've got to tune in here. This answer is the linchpin to the rest of this, this section. It is crucial. It is a very telling answer. They say, why weren't we able? Jesus says in 29, he says that this particular kind of demon cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And some manuscripts, if you guys are in the ESV, there's a little asterisk there, and some manuscripts add, and fasting. So, so this, this demon can't be driven out by anything but prayer and, and fasting, or, or just prayer in, in our translation. Now, we could stop here, and we could spend like the rest of the, the morning talking about the fact that Jesus seems to elude to the fact that there are varying strengths and powers within the demonic realm. I mean, seemingly, there are demons that can be driven out by not prayer, and there are demons that can be driven out by only prayer, right? But, but we're not going to camp out on that today. Um, man, there's great systematic theologies out there that talk about demons and angels and all that. I would commend them to you. I'll let Ronnie commend them to you. Um, so let's just keep, keep, keep moving. We're going to exit. What I want to lean into for the remainder of our time is the relationship between the disciples' inability to cast out the demon, right? Their, their inability. I want to look at what, how, how all these things tie together. Their inability with their faithlessness that Jesus accuses them of in verse 19 and their prayerlessness that Jesus implies in verse 29. Because somehow, woven into the fiber of this story, there seems to be a direct relationship between a lack of prayer, a lack of belief, and a lack of power. But what's really surprising to me about this story is that the example of prayerlessness and faithlessness and powerlessness 
The example doesn't fall on some random Galilean bystander or, or a group of unbelievers. The example is Jesus' disciples themselves. It's Jesus' own squad that seems to be the fools of this event. I mean, these are his closest dudes. These are the men that we would expect to have this sort of thing down. And I honestly think that that's why Jesus laments so sorely in verse 19. Like, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear? And so here's my sort of target idea. I promise I'm going to tell you the name of my title of my sermon and the two points we're going to examine. This is all an intro. I'm learning to preach. My intros are really long, apparently. So, so here's the sort of ballpark I want us to play in today. If the disciples' inability to exercise this demon is due to a faithlessness or a lack of belief, remember, pistis and pistuo, we can interchange these. One is a noun, one is a verb. If their inability is due to a faithlessness in verse 19, and if their inability to exercise this demon reveals a lack of prayer in verse 29 that Jesus has implied, then at the very center of this passage, of this text, lies the conviction that prayerlessness reveals faithlessness, which results in powerlessness. Or, or put another way, a lack of prayer in all of us reveals a lack of belief, which results in a lack of power. But conversely, flip that coin over, the presence of prayer reveals a, a presence of belief which results in great power. Now, this is a pretty big deal <laughs> to think that my prayer life in this room, flesh and blood, my prayer life actually serves as an indicator of my belief, of my faith, to think that my prayer life is directly correlated to the amount of God's power that I will taste and see and walk in, like this is a huge big deal. I mean, why do we think that ah, Jesus is always urging his disciples to pray in Gethsemane? Why do we think that Jesus is so grieved when three times he's, he finds his disciples not praying like he's asked them to do, but they're sleeping. Why do we think, and here's, this is telling, why do we think that Jesus never teaches his disciples how to preach a sermon or write a song or lead a group study, but he teaches them to pray? See, the sobering truth about this is that it is entirely possible to read and even study our Bibles without actually believing that God is on the other end of it. But the same cannot be said about prayer. The writer of Hebrews in 11 verse 6 says, 
in order for someone to even draw near to God in prayer, draw near to God, they must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. I mean, nobody picks up a phone knowing that, that nobody at all is on the other end. Prayer is belief. Reading Scripture may or may not be belief, but prayer is always belief because prayer is engagement. It is pursuing what we know to be true. It is faith in action. If we believe that he is there, we will go to him in prayer. So with this in mind, I I hope that I'm just providing a, a, a little bit of motivation for our active listening and engaging this text, it, today's passage is important. And if you read the Barna polls and the studies, and if we were to take a, just to you know, have everybody raise their hands of whether or not they would say, I have a healthy, committed, disciplined prayer life, I think it would be a minority. So let us, I'm just going to pray this, Lord, please help us to lean into today's verse verses with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God, I confess to you that I'm afraid for myself. I'm, f- I'm afraid for today's modern church that if our collective prayer lives were to be examined, the data would demonstrate more unbelief than belief, more powerlessness than power. So Jesus, convict us and forgive us, Lord, and give us your grace. Thank you. Amen. The title of my sermon, if you are a note taker, is Prayerlessness and Powerlessness. And I realized after I sent that to Scott on Thursday, that's really depressing. So I'm sorry. I should have put it in the positive, like mo prayer, mo power, or something, (laughs) something like, (laughs) but I didn't. I just, you know, I always look at the cup like half empty. So prayerlessness and and powerlessness. (laughs) And we're going to look at two things, okay? And we're going to sail. I, I'm used to preaching for like sub 30 minutes. So, so the first thing we're going to look at here is that a lack of prayer reveals a lack of belief, which results in a lack of power. And this is demonstrated in this morning's text by Jesus' own disciples. A lack of prayer reveals a lack of power, a lack of belief which results in a lack of power. And the second thing that I'd like to examine is that even a little prayer, like a tiny prayer, reveals a little belief which results by God's grace in great power, as demonstrated in today's text by the boy's father. Let's look at number one. How a lack of prayer reveals a lack of belief, which results in a lack of power. According to Jesus in verse 29, only prayer could have even enabled the disciples to cast out this demon. And it is precisely because they were unable to cast out the demon that we can appropriately assume they obviously weren't prayerful about the matter. We must see this connection. But I don't know if you noticed this. When we, were, when we read through the whole uh, you know, section at the very beginning, I don't know if you noticed this, Jesus wasn't prayerful in the moment either. 
I mean, all we read is that a big crowd starts coming toward Jesus. He turns, he rebukes the demon, commands it to leave the boy. Mark does not mention anything about Jesus quickly praying or quickly fasting. I don't know how that would have worked. I've gone, I've gone on a fast. It's a 15-minute fast. That's what my fasts usually look like. So, so we, we don't see him uttering a quick prayer or, 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 or quickly fasting, which is why we can conclude that, that Jesus... When he's giving his disciples the answer why they weren't able to cast out the demon in 29, he isn't primarily implying that it was their lack of prayer in the moment. Hear me. He was implying it was their lack of prayer in general. See, up until this moment, the disciples have been able to exercise all the demons they've come across They've had some success. They've tasted some spiritual victory. But somewhere along the line, which wasn't a very long line, church, they had begun to, be, begun to presume upon God's power. They had begun to take him for granted. They had begun to withdraw their prayerful dependence on him in favor of depending on what seemed to be their own power and ability. This is what happens when we stop praying. When we stop praying to God, we essentially stop depending on Him. When we stop seeking Him and asking Him and crying out to Him, we stop relying on Him. We stop believing upon Him. And how easy is this to do in today's modern world? Especially here in America, dudes. Like, needlessness and complete independence is treated as a virtue on every street in our country. To be dependent on no one is actually the desired result of the American dream. The fact is, is that 90% of the obstacles that you and I face can now seemingly be resolved or even removed in a matter of two-day shipping from Amazon Prime. <laughs> right? I didn't even intend for that to be funny, but it is. I mean, why pray? Really, pragmatically, why pray? when we can just swipe a credit card and make most of the issue go away? Why pray when we can just flip open our smartphone and we can help ourselves to a smorgasbord of blogs and, and articles to help ourselves, out, to help ourselves yeah, out of our difficulties? When we're impatient, which is what my wife and I deal with on the regular, we have four nutsos, like we, we just log on. We're like, oh gosh, help me with my impatience, somebody when we're riddled with anxiety or depression or this, that, and the other, there's a blog. It can help us almost instantaneously to get ourselves out of the pit. Now, if this is just at a personal day-to-day -day level, what might be said about our churches and our ministries? I think one of the most sobering things about the disciples and their lack of believing prayer and dependence on God 
is that they were seemingly able to do a lot of ministry stuff just fine while in their state of prayerlessness. And it makes me wonder how many pastors and bloggers and musicians and homeschooling moms and dads are doing the same thing, literally operating on their own steam, by their own power and ability, not thinking anything of it. How many of us have succumbed to the deception that because we're handling it, we're handling life and ministry pretty okay, we must not really need to maintain a disciplined, daily, devoted, dependent prayer life. I think of some of the, the pastors that I used to look up to and I led worship for 10 years and, and would, would listen to these guys and, and dream of one day being used by God to preach to congregations as they, I mean, these dudes preached great sermons, they discipled tons of people, they ran tight leadership teams, but over the course of time, in their own confidence, they ended up removing themselves from their prayer closets in order to attend growth strategy meetings. And in doing so, it was the beginning of the end of their ministry as they knew it. John Owen is uh, this awesome dude who was like a 17th century mind. He was a theologian, and, and he has this quote that my wife and I keep written on our kids' chalkboard in our kitchen. He says... What a man is on his knees in secret before God, that he is and no more. What a woman is on her knees in secret before God, that she is and no more. What a church is on its knees in the secret place before God, that it is, and no more. I thought about this. I wonder what my spiritual maturity, my spiritual age would be if it were only calculated in the time of intimacy that I spend with God by myself, where I'm not under the metaphorical light. Well, I don't have my ax that I'm grinding right here. You know what I mean? I, I wonder. I wonder what my maturity level would actually be could it be that in our efforts to do in the name of Jesus, we've neglected to depend on the name of Jesus? For the disciples, they were probably, during this time, just go, 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 do, 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 jumping from one exorcism to the other, one ministry event to the next, one outreach program to the next one. And somehow, in the midst of all of the doing, church, they lost the depending. But brothers and sisters, when we step out of the depending, when we step away from the believing church, we are removing ourselves from the very power of God unto salvation itself. 
This is about, this, this passage is about much more than casting out demons. The very power of God that is our lifeblood can only be ascertained through a dependent belief, dependent belief on the name of Jesus Christ. It's not wrapped up in the things we do. There will be a day where some will come to Jesus and they'll say, look at all the things I do and, and, I, and I did in your name. And what does he say? I never knew you. My God. My God. If Jesus says that the way we are to depend on him is through prayer, which is how we are kept sovereignly in the very power of God unto salvation, then church, we need to be praying like our lives depend on it. I love Tim Keller. I named my fourth, my, my, my brand new son, Keller. I have a man crush on this dude, okay? And he has a prayer book that I would commend to every one of you. It's called Prayer. You can't miss it. You can two-day ship it from Amazon Prime. <laughs> And in the book, he has an illustration that I'm going to butcher. I promise you, I'm going to butcher it. But Kathy, his wife, gives this illustration that if you or I tomorrow or even today were to be told we have a fatal disease, it's fatal, we're, we're, we're done with. There's no hope except for this one pill. If you just take this pill once every day, you'll be fine. And her illustration goes to say, I bet you we would never miss a day. We wouldn't just not get to it. We wouldn't forget about it when we go to Cedar Point or whatever the cool kids do these days. We wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't forget about it. And the same can be said about prayer. This is a battle for our souls. Yes, church, I am reformed. I, God is sovereign. Yes, he keeps, he saves. Grace, grace, grace all the day long. But he does so through our faith-fueled effort of staying in the game, baby. Like, that's how he does it. He invigorates our souls. He shows us his beauty and he says, get to work. Kill your sin. Get in your prayer closet. Be with me. I bet you we would never miss another day in our lives. I bet you our bosses would have to call. Where are you? I'm in my prayer closet. <laughs> and then we would get to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. They'd fire us. If a lack of prayer reveals a lack of belief, according to Jesus in this passage, why are we not asking him right now, Lord, give me a hunger for prayer? Give me more discipline. I want to be up at five every morning. Help me. Even if I'm half unconscious, Lord, I'm, I, I want to honor you. I want to show up. And as we see in this very next section, this is exactly what happens. In point number two, that even a little prayer, such as what I just gave you, Lord, give me hunger. Even a little prayer reveals a little belief which results by God's grace in great power, as demonstrated, as caricaturized by this boy's father. Let's 
read from verse 20 onward to refresh here. And they brought the boy to him, that is Jesus, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed, it fell to the ground, it rolled about, foaming at the mouth, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening? Do you hear the compassion in his voice? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Interestingly, fire and water are used by God for purifying and forgiveness. Interesting. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out. Some manuscripts add, he cried out, he cried out with tears. I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. He said to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, get out of him, never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. The boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Whew. I don't know, we don't know much about this man, this father, who he was or where he was from. In the sound of Mark's telling, he was probably not one of Jesus' regular disciples, but he is a desperate dad who has come seeking help for his poor boy. And I almost envision him fighting his way through the crowd. Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming off the mountain, and he's fighting his way through the crowd to get to Jesus because Jesus in 16, when he asks the question, what are you, what are you all arguing about? It is this man who, oh, he breaks through, and he answers in verse 17. He's been waiting for Jesus. It's my boy. It's my boy. I've brought him to you. He's desperate for Jesus' help because this demon is a stubborn one. He's strong. And in contrast to the disciples, in contrast to those who should know better, who've seemingly, they've begun to depend on their own power and ability, we can draw from this text, this man, this man is depending on Christ. He has no other option. There is a sweet mercy in the calamities of our lives that back us into a corner where we have no option. I've heard doctrines preached from churches of God would never allow something horrible to happen in your life because he's just, he's for you. Yes, he is. He's so for us that there's a sweet mercy when cancer strikes or when demon possession strikes, or something else that brings us to our wit's end so we're not grappling for other things, but we're finally able to go to Jesus himself. There's a sweet mercy in the fact that this man has no other option but Christ. Notice how at first this man's confidence seems shaky. He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, if you can, would you have compassion and help, help us? And I love that this slightly uncertain language does not deter Jesus one bit. He recognizes this man's belief, his faith, by the fact that the man has showed up to engage him in the first place. He showed up. I don't know about you other millennials in here, but I think one of the greatest movies of all time is The Mighty Ducks. And 
Adam Banks, who has just transferred from District like 12, or, or maybe that's Hunger Games. He, he, he transfers from the Hawks, and he's in the Ducks dressing room, and they want to know if he really believes in the Ducks, and he's like, I'm here, aren't I? Like, I always wanted to say, I'm here, give me my jersey, I'll go out and score a hat trick. There's something, church, there's something about showing up. There's something about making that appointment with the Lord at 5 a.m. every morning and just getting your butt there. There's something about it. So Jesus says to this man, if, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. If, really? If you can, if I can help you? And tell me if this doesn't sound familiar all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, this man cries out with tears. One of the most honest, humble, real, God-glorifying, faith-filled prayers recorded in the Bible. And this prayer would do us, many of us good. If you're into tattoos, get it done. If you're into sticky notes, get those done. It would do us good to have it written everywhere. I believe, I believe, but, but, but Lord, help, help my unbelief, please. I'm here, aren't I? I'm, I'm here. I showed up. Now, I have to trust that you're going to do all of the, you're going to do the heavy lifting for me. Talk about faith the size of a mustard seed. Heaven is so gracious to honor these feeble requests. The very power of God moves to the prayers of those who are even dependent on him for dependence itself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I got, to, I got to preach that a few weeks ago at our church in Columbus. The poor in spirit are those who know they have nothing together. They cannot conjure up the faith on their own. They have nothing of value. They have nothing they can bring to Jesus. Well, they have one thing they can bring to Jesus, need. I believe, help my unbelief. When we don't pray because, as Jesus would imply, when we don't pray because we don't believe, or when we're not praying because we're temporarily, we're not believing, we don't experience the power of God. But even a tiny little prayer such as I believe, but help my unbelief. Results by God's grace, not in a little bit of, of, of power, great, mountain shifting, mustard seed growing power. Do we see the miracle in today's passage? The miracle made possible by Jesus. You see, Jesus, he was the one who lived in perfect, prayerful belief and on God every day of his life and yet when he was in the garden praying out asking that there might be another way than the cross he goes rejected he was rejected although he was in perfect belief so that we who are in imperfect belief would be received do we see the shift the transaction. In the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed by Judas, he pleaded, Abba, Father, 
This sounds familiar. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. If there's any other way that we can save our people that doesn't involve dying on a cross, let it be. Nevertheless, your will be done. See, because Jesus, who was in perfect faith, was denied, you and I in our imperfect faith this morning can be received. Because Jesus, who was perfect in his dependence on the Father, was punished, you and I in our imperfect dependence on the Father can be forgiven right now. Brothers and sisters, do we believe enough to show up and to ask for help for the rest of our unbelief, which could be magnanimous, could be huge. Do we believe enough to do that? Because we can take solace in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the sort of prayer that can't go unanswered by God. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Do you think help my unbelief might be according to his will? Yes. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Sweet mercy. Hallelujah. Let's pray. It's only fitting, Lord, that I would begin this prayer by pleading to you for forgiveness and crying out, help my unbelief. And it is the easiest thing in the world to stand up here on a stage and look all pious in front of a bunch of other Christians, like I have all of my stuff together, when you know my heart. You know. God, forgive me. Help my unbelief. For I believe, Lord. I believe you hear this. I have the assurance of what is unseen, the conviction, the assurance of what is hoped for, the conviction of what is unseen. And if any of my brothers and sisters in this room can echo that, I pray that, God, you would hear them as well. In Jesus' name, amen.